Hey, and welcome to the cast. We're excited to have you join us today for this conversation. And hey, we just want to give a shout out to anyone who's been commenting and, and sharing your questions with us and even liking, reviewing. And we really do appreciate it. it. helps us get the word out about what we're doing, the conversation that we're having. And so um, really do appreciate it. This is sort of a conversation we want to invite people into, um, no matter if you're going to a church or not. And so the more we get to share it and be part of the larger conversation just helps us get better as a, as a community and as a podcast. So thanks for that. Today we're going to tackle some questions that we got online um, in response to some of our previous episodes. Um, we have three that we're going to tackle today, and so we're going to jump right in. This first one here is from Heather, and she asks, Does more knowledge give you the upper hand in arguing theory and truths with atheists? In your experience, has more knowledge in theory changed a non-believer to believe in God? That's a great question. Um, I think there's a couple elements here that we have to just be aware of. One is that at the end of the day, um, I would argue that having a, a strong theological, philosophical foundation for faith will always help you engage better, right? Because the issue oftentimes when it comes to apologetics and um, intellectual debates is going to be certain key objections, suffering hell, exclusion, um, those are basically the big three. Um, and a lot of them are emotional, right? Like, and so that's where, like, yes, having a good foundation is, is key. But when we talk about getting the upper hand, I think the goal is never to try to prove somebody wrong. It's try to lead them to a place of seeing the, essentially, I would call it the benefit, but but the, the also the deficiency of their own reasoning. Right? And, and I don't mean that in a negative sense that, that someone who is not believing in God is somehow is deficient in reasoning. It's just that there's, I would argue, a lot of incongruencies and inconsistencies with how they are reasoning. And I think being able to, to see those things and call them out and understand them um, would always help a conversation. Now, at the end of the day, I do fully believe you will never argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven. And so... Um, I, I don't think it's it's a valuable approach to believe that my apologetic is going to essentially lead to salvation. I think it can set the stage for conversion of faith. Uh, but at the end of the day, even you could argue, and I, I've had philosophers argue this, or I've read philosophers and listened to philosophers argue this, that even good theistic philosophy can get you to the place of believing that there is a benevolent, moral, all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, present, loving God. But there is an element of faith in believing that that God incarnated in Jesus, died on a cross and rose again. So yeah. we would still argue there's good reason to believe that. But the most concrete sort of like pure rational um, or not rational, that's the wrong word, pure reason um, and can only get you really to theism. Yeah. I think a strong theism, mm -hmm. but, but then I think there are some other things that have to go on to get you to the place of, okay, and Jesus is the revelation at that point um and so it's i would say it's yes and no right like we have to have a good foundation to be able to argue well and articulate our faith uh but recognize that at the end of the day um we do believe in the holy spirit you know calling hearts to salvation making himself known that uses and he that he, he uses apologetics but they're not like the the they aren't the um the silver bullet, like just being able to out-argue someone doesn't lead them to Jesus. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of deeply held beliefs and a lot of deeply held assumptions that are like really difficult to break loose of people. I mean, even when we examine some of our own theology, I think like maybe the value of challenging your own things is so that you can actually uh, reinforce that better with, with actual sound logic and reason. But sometimes mm -hmm. for, for people that have lived their entire lives outside of the world of faith, that really would alter their life and how they've been living it significantly. And sometimes, like, at the end of the day, I think 
emotion always ends up having the final say in whether someone comes to faith or not. I think more than we realize, like I think people who would assume that they're just highly rational people yeah. don't give enough credence to how emotional we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would argue it's because we have built our lives off certain assumptions. Like, let's be real. Like, I think there's something that Christians don't often talk about enough is that, like, I'm staking my life on the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, right? And that does predispose me to not necessarily want to seek other answers, Yeah. right? So we have to actually do that. We have to be aware of the fact that I will live in bias. And I would argue, you know, because I am a Christian, that... It's not a bad bias, but yeah. I still have to be willing, to, like you said, to bring to those questions. Like, why do I believe these things? Is it just because I've always have always have believed, or is it deeper than that? Like, where is that faith element? And 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 like I said, there comes a point where 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 our pure reason, which we would actually argue as Christians, is broken. So that's also a, a component of sin that we don't mm-hmm. often talk about in the rational world. Um, that we, we there is that element of faith, and so I think you're right, Sam. Like. We have to realize that we aren't as rational as we think we are, yeah. Um, and we aren't as consistent, right? Because mm-hmm. even Christians don't live out the their worldview, right? Oh, so, no, it's, so yeah. it's not even to pretend like we do it perfectly, right? Mm-hmm. But as I've said to the church and even to you a lot, like it's, we just believe we have not the necessarily all the answers, but we believe that we have the best answer for the deepest questions, mm-hmm. and and so it's just getting to the point of saying, you know what, the reason why we believe in beauty and love and meaning and morality and progress and the in you know creation care and justice for people and like all those things we believe have the best foundation yeah in what we believe that doesn't mean an atheist won't believe those things we actually hope that they do believe yeah. those things so it's just being able to say like i can articulate the reasons why those flow better out of a jesus-centered worldview and then allowing mm-hmm. sort of the rest of that conversation to get into the place of well, there's more to it than just my reason. There is my emotion. There is my suffering. There is my pain. There is my woundedness. There is my bias. There is my faith. There is all these things that are part of me. Yeah. Like as much as I've talked about like the idea of deconstructing your faith and coming back to those, you know, basic questions and even asking the right questions. um, I think that's something that maybe is expected of Christians, like question your faith, but I don't think atheists hold themselves to that same standard as much it's because to them you know it seems like a much harder thing to believe that what we believe but that's based on a lot of built-in assumptions that about life that they have already i think and um basically what i'm saying is atheists should deconstruct their faith and i think actually the better way to argue with them is to force them to ask some of those questions that maybe they've been ignoring and I mean, having if the most productive conversations I've had with people who don't believe in God have just been ones that have been asking them questions and forcing them to kind of, you know, work the logic out in their head about the beliefs that they hold, especially when it comes to things like morality. Like that's a that is a very difficult one to argue your way around when you're an atheist and when you don't really have an, an objective standard of morality beyond natural law. Yeah, no, 100%. And I do think that that's a very powerful thing we get to do is ask questions, right? And that's why I really like a guy named Mark Clark. That's sort of his big thing is like, we have to just have conversations where we're always trying to assume that we need to get to the the actual logical flow of what we've assumed to be true, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, I agree 100% with, with, with what you just said. I don't think often in our modern secular world, right? Worldviews are treated equally, right? Like there is this demand of, of the Christian to provide X amount of evidence, right? For their truth claim. Well, the the atheist statement that God does not exist, you know, in particular, Jesus is not real, you know, not really God in specific, right? It's still truth claims that need to be backed up with good evidence and good reason and good logic beyond emotional reactions to certain things, right? Because even like, we, we obviously won't get into it right now, but, you know, some philosophers have even argued that the that the argument of, of suffering in the world evil, right, is is 
a logically dead argument now because we we have developed theories that are logically consistent that can hold suffering and a good God together. The issue is often the emotional side of it, that it does not feel good. It does not it does not sense right. And then I have to put my sense of that over and above the logic or put them at, at odds. And so I think, yeah, like like we have to be able to sit back almost in a very non-arrogant, hopefully, way and just ask the same questions they ask of us. Well, why do you believe that? And what is the implication of that? And and where's the basis for that? And realize that every truth claim equally demands proper evidence, proper reason, proper logic, um, given, you know, that we are all hopefully searching for the truth and actually desire that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I, so for more on apologetics in general, I would highly recommend that Mark Clark book, The Problem of God. Um, we read that as part of a... Uh, growth class here at Risen City Church, and uh, I found it really easy to read, really easy to digest, and uh, even if you're not, uh, you know, if you don't care that much about apologetics, I think it's helpful stuff to know, to even understand your own faith better, and uh, just to be prepared in case you do have those conversations, that you know how to ask the right questions, and you know the answers also to those questions Mm -hmm. that you're going to ask. All right, our next question is, can the community we are supposed to cultivate be the comfort that is compromising our calling? Lovely alliteration there. So I'll read that again, in case you didn't hear it the first time or are trying to make sense of it still. Can the community we are supposed to cultivate be the comfort that is compromising our calling? Mike, do you want to uh, take a stab at summing that up in different words and also maybe addressing it? Yeah, sure, Sam. All right. And and I think what I'm hearing is that, you know, when, when we are called as Christians to do certain things, to be in community, um, sometimes community can become a safe place where, in safety, and, and not necessarily a good sense, a safety where we can be lulled into complacency. And that's what I really see, see this question asking, right? Where it says comfort and compromising, really it's about complacency in the pursuit of our calling. And I would say this, can the community become this? Of course it can, if I let it, right? This is very, this is not about the community, it's about me. Mm, Um, I have to opt into discomfort, I have to opt into serving, I have to opt into growth and pushing myself and and stretching my capacity um, and choosing to grow in my capacity. And so, if I allow myself to coast and be complacent, if I allow myself just to be a consumer, not a producer, um, then that's not in the community. That, that That's on you. Yeah, I totally agree. I would say that if you find yourself ever asking this question, um, the answer is yes. The solution to the question is do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because you also play a big role in cultivating that community and if you want a community that is about embracing calling like you have to play an active role in being that 100 percent. like i think i i yeah when, when i hear this question i get what i get what it's being asked and i think it's just and i again in in no um i don't mean to be you know assuming certain things but it feels like this is an abdication of responsibility you know, well, my community is easy for me. Well, then choose it not to be. Step out. Do something that you're not comfortable doing. Do something that you're not normally doing. You know, choose to push your limitations or your capacity um, beyond what they currently are. And maybe it's leading something. Maybe it is serving in a new way. Maybe it's getting into a new area of the church, um, serving new people, the church, inviting people over that you've never met. Because I can guarantee you do not know the fullest extent of your community. Um at all. Like there's been studies that come out that, you know, in any search size, whether it's 3000 or, or, you know, or hundred, you really only will know seven or eight, maybe 10 people really well. So I can already tell you that you don't even know the fullness of your community. And so really what you're asking is, is my, is my smaller kind of click the place of my comfort? Definitely. Right. And we got to push ourselves outside of that, serve people we don't normally hang out with, be with people that are different than us and and choose to serve in a capacity that stretches me. I think we often have this theory in in the church today that like, you know, we have overemphasized 
the we've overemphasized the the desire to make church participation have such a low bar and like just get people to but like Jesus' call was full life in all things discipleship, which is not comfortable, not easy. And, you know, to be a disciple of Jesus is to serve, is to give, is to be like him, to do all that he's commanded me to do. And so I just think that that's like, we when, when we're in that place of I'm finding this community to be easy and comfortable, you're setting the bar way too low for yourself. There's people that, that need you to increase your capacity to lead and serve and be and do and sacrifice and push um, for the sake of the kingdom of God and the good of people. Yeah. And I think if you do take that step and stretch yourself and push your capacity, you will be amazed at the kind of influence that that can have on the people that are maybe causing you to feel comfortable and complacent in your space right now. Like no one's going to look down on that. Like that's, that is an admirable thing. People are going to want to participate in that and be a part of it too. Like that is where community is formed by people going outside their comfort zone together. Like that is, you know, it's that uh, shared experience of sometimes it's suffering Mm -hmm. and that does bring people close together. So um, a good community helps each other through those times of suffering as well. So um, I think if you want to be a part of an amazing community, push yourself Jump headfirst into your calling. Yeah, and I just had this thought. Like, if if who you're calling community is somehow actively compromising your calling in the sense of, like, discouraging your growth, discouraging your involvement, discouraging um, your stretching, you need to get better friends. I'm just saying, right? Because... If, if the key voices in your life are the ones telling you just to be comfortable, chase safety, like, I, like Jesus never promised safety and comfort. He, he promised that we would have peace, that we would have joy, that he has overcome the trials that we'll face, that he is the God of all comfort in the morning sense, not in the ease of life sense. We talk, we've talked about this many times that like we want the resurrection without the cross, but that's not the story of our faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like if, if, you're, if you have a community that's really trying to, is highly values comfort in the sense of ease and, and safety and, and easy living, you need to get some better friends and influence those people to love Jesus more. But like, I'm just saying, if those are the highest voices, you, need, you, you might need to get some other voices speaking better things into your life. Um, Cause the calling God has on your life is that important that you want people calling it out and encouraging it and honoring it and not creating a space where it's going to be compromised. That's why we need truth. That's why we need people who will speak true things into us and call us higher than where we're currently at. Um, it can see into us the, the, the gifts and the calling potential God has placed in your heart. Um, and so you might need some people who will speak harder things, but truer things to see the real things of God in your life. Our last question is, how do you rationalize God calling you to a place where there will be no opportunity for community, i.e. certain mission fields? Well, I'm not a missionary, so I can give some theory maybe, but I have no real experience in this regard. Um, but I think that, again, there is specific calling and general calling. Every Christian is generally called to be in the church community, right? Yeah. All of us are part of the church, capital C, mm-hmm. as soon as we get saved. This is what we often don't understand, is that Christianity is, 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 is about individual salvation, but it's a communal faith. Like, we get saved into the family of God. We don't just get saved into our own individual spiritual experience. It's part of it, but it's not the total picture. And so once you get saved, you are in the family of God. So you're part of a community regardless of where, of where you're at. And there are the specific callings, like of a missions field, where you're going somewhere where maybe it's you know unreached people, and you have to you know, legitimately build from the grassroots up everything about that new community. But luckily, you know, I'm just saying... 
we live in a world where there's cell phones, there's video chat, there's emails, that you can always cultivate a sense of community and love um, being miles apart. I would say that one of the first things I do as a missionary in a foreign place is try to build some friendships, build some con contacts, um, but recognize that, you know, at the end of the day, God is going to equip us for what he has called us to. And if it means that I have to be in a season of solitude, um, then I have to accept that as long as I don't enter that season in isolation, right? Prayer, um, you know, reaching out to people, having phone calls, choosing to involve myself in in places of, of friendship where I can. And again, it's going to be specific. There's some places that are completely closed and you can't even send emails and you probably need to go on stints, go in, get out, go in, get out. I don't know. I'm not a missionary expert, right? People study this and, and make it part of their, their calling in life. And it's not mine, so I can't necessarily speak to that ex experience part of it. But I would wrestle with those two things. Like, is this the specific call on your life? And then if it is, what is the wisdom in doing that? That isolation and solitude are very different. Um, and so solitude might be a season, but isolation is a choice that you make. Yeah, and I'm not going to really answer this question because I don't have any experience personally to draw on, but I'll just tell like about my grandparents a little bit. They were missionaries in Spain. Um, they were tasked specifically with um, just being missionaries to the drug addicts in um, some of those cities, uh, Boiro and Santiago, and I think Madrid as well. And uh, I know when they first got to Spain, like what they did, they had... I think they had other people there helping them a little bit, but they had an apartment and they went out where all the drug dealers would hang out and the drug addicts where they were shooting up needles and they would just invite them over for dinner. And they do that every day. They just invite different people over for dinner. And I mean, their churches that they helped plant over there in Spain are like pastored by former drug addicts, mm, like now awesome. even. Um, so... I mean, I th if that's not the spirit at work, like, I don't know what is. And I think there are, there's just so many miraculous things that have happened um, in their lives that happened to them while they were there that, uh, I mean, that just seem impossible. So uh, trust the spirit. I guess yeah, that's my answer. And that sort of kind of reminds me of that kind of pioneering, ap almost apostolic kind of gifting right that like i can go and i can be the igniter of ministry which i think sometimes you need like there's going to be people that have to go into places that are quite dead and empty and be the spark and be what god uses and that and i would say in this case this sounds like someone who would need that kind of calling that that pioneering spirit um to go and do that and be the first one to go right often church plants need that right church plants often need pioneer kind of people who are willing to work harder and do more and almost see less for a time to till the ground for the harvest that's going to come. Um, and so that can't, same kind of attitude I can, I, I think the spirit does give people with that I can go and be that catalytic um, presence. So maybe if that's what you feel called to, then I'd also ask the spirit to either show me if I have that gifting or find me a partner who does have that kind of gifting that I can rely on. Um, and I, Jesus sent people out two by two. So, you know, I don't think God's going to call you into missions alone. Um, I'm sure there are stories in history where people went by themselves. Fine. Okay. There's exceptions to every rule, but he sent disciples out in twos. Um, I would say that the best opportunity often is to go with a partnership, whether that's a spouse, whether that's another ministry partner, whether that's to go create communities, churches, you know, missions agencies to build that community. Like, because I could, I can't really imagine trying to go into a place, you know, with nothing, with nobody, and try to do do ministry. Like that's hard, and there might be a certain grace for people. Maybe I just don't have, and I probably don't have that grace, which is why I'm not called to do that. But I would argue that too, that maybe you need to find some partners um, in ministry that can go with you and support you, whether that's from afar or close or, you know, a spouse. Not that you, like Paul was single. He had men, he had guys he mentored, right? So he always brought people with him. Um, and so I think the pattern of going with somebody is also vital in that, in that calling.
Well, Mike, what are we going to talk about today? What a great setup, Sam. Um, no, I was talking to Sam about this article that I heard about um, that I think is just so important for us um, as the modern church and even a sort of generational conversation to have. Um, a new study came out from Barna about millennials and our opinions on the Great Commission. Um, and, to, and to break it down, basically what they found... And this is and this is stateside, so it's a little different Canada. I would probably argue it's probably, probably worse, worse Canada, yeah. right? But um, that it's about somewhere in the ninety-four to ninety-seven percent of Christians say that practicing Christians say that like witnessing about Jesus is a good thing, and that the best decision someone can make is to follow Jesus. Agreed, um, and that millennials um, apparently feel pretty equipped to be able to share their faith. Um, like there was, they did a study and they found that about seventy three percent feel like they could respond to questions about faith or feel that they have a particular gifting in sharing faith. Um, so almost three quarters of them. But then, uh, this is the the actual quote. Despite this, many millennials are unsure about the cultural or the actual practice of evangelism. Almost half of millennials, forty seven percent, agree, at least somewhat, that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share that same faith. And so it's, it's, and they're trying to put it in the context of like a post Christian, um, post modern, um, pluralistic society, which I 100% agree with. Um, but they're just trying to make this case that this is kind of like the lowest it's been. Um, in, for them, they went back, to, um, I think two more generations. Uh, no, three more generations in the millennials. So three generations older, Gen X, Boomers, and the Elders, they called them, um, who were about half. So half of the, so it was like 27%, 20%, and eight, 19% thought that it was wrong. So um, 50% less. <laughs> like, wow. And so the millennials have jumped wildly high believing that it's it's actually wrong. Like not just like distasteful, but, but wrong. Uh, to do it, that there's this negative um, connotation to trying to be like this. And so it's just re really the questions that people are asking is really at the end of the day, um, you know, why is that? Because um, we have stats, but like, what is the heart behind it really? What, what is the story being told? Why do millennials feel this way? Um, and, you know, especially as a church, Right, like we, this is a huge deal. If half our people believe, actually, you know what, the Great Commission is not all that important for my everyday life. That's huge, right? Yeah. And and we got to figure out like what's going on. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of that probably. This is just my hypothesis, but a lot of it probably comes down to just an understanding of what the word evangelism means. I think it's very easy to picture in your head when you hear the word evangelism a loud, angry street preacher telling you that you're condemned to hell unless you <laughs> repent and believe in Jesus Christ, which is, to someone who isn't even, like, maybe immersed in the church world or, like, to someone who maybe doesn't even know or understand the full story of that and why that is, like, that's a weird message to hear. Like, you're going to hell. Like, so, you, I don't know. I'm just, just try and put yourself in the shoes of someone wasn't raised in a Christian home on the street, hearing that for the first time, like what would your reaction be? My reaction would not be to repent and turn to Jesus. My reaction would be like, hey, is someone going to call the police on that guy there? Like he's really upsetting a lot of people True. right now. So if that is the definition of evangelism, then yes, I believe that's, you know, most people would not be comfortable with doing that kind of approach. Um, 100%. One other quote is that, um, some it was one of the, like the leaders of the study said this um, cultivating deep steady resilient Christian conviction is difficult in a world of you do you and don't criticize anyone's life choices and em emotivism and the feelings first priority that our culture makes a way of life as much as ever evangelism isn't just about saving the unsaved but reminding ourselves that this stuff matters that the Bible is trustworthy and that Jesus changes everything and so he's trying to speak into I think more of that um cultural story that 
like your truth is your truth so you just do whatever you want and who am i to tell you you might be wrong it's not hurting me right it's fine that and which is kind of really selfish when you think about it if if it doesn't affect my life then do whatever you want bro Mm. right well i don't know i'm pretty sure we're called to care for people yeah right not just tolerate people right and um but yeah and so i agree with you that if if the definition of evangelism is obnoxious, um, loud, in your face kind of um, shotgun evangelism, just like shoot it out there and hope someone yeah. responds, and I would I would agree. I don't think that works. I don't think that's worked for a while. Um, I don't think that was even like people would argue that's like the method of Paul. I've heard people say that, but I actually don't agree. Like I don't agree with that either, and I think a lot of them will back it up with. Uh, like verses in John where it says like they'll hate you as a, as they've hated me and then when people get mad at them preaching on the street corner they're like see guys see they hate me I'm <laughs> that means I'm doing the right thing and um, yeah I don't I agree I don't think it has worked out I mean it turns me off I almost feel like I'm not even like we're brothers in Christ but I really feel like I'm not one of those people when I see that on mm. the street like it's it feels almost like a different religion that I'm witnessing. But I mean, like it's not, but it's just, yeah, again, disagree with the tactics. Methodology is important, 100%. Right? We got to figure that out. And I think it's sad. Like, to me, like the, the, the wild disconnect between the, a church who believes, like what is it, 94% believe that like the best decision someone can make is to know Jesus. Then half those people are like, yeah, but I don't want to talk about it. Like... I don't know. To me, that is just wild, wildly incongruent. Or right? it's just it's like those don't go together. It's inconsistent. It's, yeah. it's not. It's you can't believe that what I have is amazing, but you know I don't really want to share that with anybody. And that's where I do think maybe the question is going to be: what is what is the what is the millennial what what is the millennial method um, of evangelism in in how do we encourage people to take that step? As a pastor, I think about that a lot, right? Like, what does evangelism look like today? And um, how do we engage with people in a way that is as... And, and this... See, see like... At, and, and I'm going to use this word very loosely, but how do we present the gospel in such a way that it becomes as irresistible as the Jesus that we read about? as that early church like adding to the number daily like kind of thing where like they had favor with the people and like you know willing to die like willing to die for this kind of stuff and we're just like ah it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. like 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 how it, there, it, there's got to be something in the gospel that we are preaching that we've allowed millennials to grow up hearing that has caused us to believe that this isn't important. I feel like you can't really have this discussion also without talking about um, hell, for example, because the way that the Great Commission is often presented is that, you know, you need to make sure these people don't end up in hell in the afterlife, which I'm not going to make a value judgment there. That's just how it sometimes is presented. Um, And I do wonder if the idea of hell is a lot less compelling to millennials nowadays because uh, ideas like universalism and annihilationism are kind of, I mean, they're definitely emotionally appealing. Like I hope those are true. I don't necessarily believe that myself, but I, th- I think that those are more popular takes on hell and, you know, the consequence of not believing in Jesus amongst millennials and certainly in liberal theological circles. So I wonder if that plays a role in millennials just not caring enough about spreading spreading the gospel. And I mean, I don't mm-hmm. I also do think that a um faith that's motivated by a fear of hell is really weak. I would and I think you would agree with that mm-hmm. too, Mike. Yeah. Like to me the your motivation should be you want to bring heaven here. That's what we talk about at church. That's mm-hmm. um, you know, that is our almost what would you say? It's our one of our mantras right now. Yeah, it's one of our mantras. Yeah, no, I agree, and that's where I think that is kind of the 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 pushback potentially I could see is it's when you have a a fear based relationship, 
Like that's that like that's just not what we believe. Like we believe like I don't lo- I don't love Jesus because I'm afraid of going to hell. Maybe when I was younger. Yeah, well, right? I certainly right. That's like if it's true, <laughs> I don't want to go there. Which is I think a, like it's it's not a, sorry it's not a bad motivation, right? It's just not a sustaining one. No, right. That if it doesn't get to the point of actually no, I love Jesus more than life, right? Then that is what like that is the gospel to me is 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 I mean like. It's so much better than what we present. If it simply is, and this is where I think we've actually done a disservice to all the millennial generation. What we are seeing right now, in a very, I would say, real sense, is is there is an apathy towards this kind of mission because Christianity has become essentially the minimal believism. What is the lowest thing I can believe just to get to heaven one day, book my ticket and not worry about it? That was never the thing. Like the the, the the invitation of Jesus, come follow me, give your life to me, right? And then people's response, right, to that. The, the disciples giving everything, you know, Paul changing everything about his life, the, the radical transformation of the early church. Like those things are pictures of what was meant to happen by this presence of the Spirit that is so much more compelling than just like I prayed a prayer and I'm in now. Like that, like, do I believe that the grace of God is that good? One hundred percent. That's why it's that good. That it, it is, it's it's beyond my imagination. But the invitation is so much greater than just that. That's where grace, I think, we've lost. Right? We we talk about this at, at a church that that grace is the empowerment in my life of God doing things through me that I would never be able to do on my own. Right? So it's not just salvation. It's everything else. It is the fact that I get to do life. In the perspective, not of chasing heaven one day, but having heaven come here, having heaven into my heart, my home, my city, that I get to be part of that, right? That that is the mission of Jesus, that when you read through the book of John, he's like, you can have eternal life. And it wasn't, you can have one day this thing called heaven where you live in the clouds and float. Like it was right now, eternal life can enter. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's it's right before us. It's right here. And, and the good news of Jesus is that we get to be in this kingdom, the, the the realm of God's domain that actually is effective and good now. Yeah. Like that's the invitation. I and I think that is the compel like that would be what motivates me to do the Great Commission right now. Cause I feel like I have so many conversations with people, like just deep talks about life with friends. Like I've had numerous ones this past week just going out for coffee and sitting at home and them talking through some of their problems. And I just keep thinking like, man, this would just be so much easier to help you out if you knew Jesus. Because we'd have the same like standard, uh, you know, guiding principle principle, uh, to go off of here. And I could help you talk through that. We could work it out. And But when we're not after the same thing, that just becomes so much more difficult. It's like, how do I truly help you without ultimately pointing you to Jesus? Well, and I don't think, to be honest, like, and I don't, and this might be the answer to that. It's like, you can't. Like, in our minds, like, the greatest help is I'm going to point you to Jesus. Now, that, that, that doesn't mean I won't help you as much as I can without talking about that. But, like, I, I think we can't be afraid. Not that you're saying you're afraid, but I mean the general listener, yeah. right, to actually say, you know what, but the best help I can offer you is what I have found in Jesus. This is where I think evangelism has to be. Evangelism has to be from the place of weakness. I think this has been, I think the, the millennial issue is that evangelism has often been from the place of rightness. Mm. We have the right answer, say the right answer, you get in. But we're not Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We just could be the ones that point to him. And how do we point to him? except through my brokenness, because that's what unites me between other human beings, right? It's not, it's not my victory, it's not my strength, not my religion, it's 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 my brokenness that, and in our case, that has been found in a healer, that now there there is this hope that I have. And I think that that is the modern, no, I don't even wanna say modern, that should be our mode of evangelism all the time, that, that in the modern world where, you know, we don't have the same value system, we don't have the same assumptions, right? What do we have in common? Brokenness. What do we have in common? Fear. They, they came out, I just was listening this morning um, to a video, or not this morning, the, the, this afternoon, um, from Pew Research, and the highest issue in 13 to 17-year-olds right now that they found 
anxiety. Yeah. Stress, worry, depression. I believe it. Right? Yeah. Like, like that's the biggest thing plaguing this modern world, mm. right? And guess who feels that? Everybody. Yeah. Right? And so what is our hope? See, this is tied into that other conversation we were talking about, right? That people are saying that millennials are the most pessimistic generation. That there's even people who are saying that that we, and I don't know if this is true or not. I, it, I heard it in like a, um, on a podcast that like we are essentially just doomsday people. We just believe the world's going to hell in a handbasket. So, well, it's like what Henry Nowen was talking about. We can't envision a future for ourselves. Yeah. And it's like, why? So, so like, I actually heard it in one of the coffee shops here that, you know, why bother having kids? Like yeah. the world sucks. Cause my, cause what, what, what they're saying is the world won't get better. And so why bother bringing another generation into it? Where a generation ago, um, even too, they, they believe that their hard work could potentially produce a better space for my future children. I want to set my kids up for better things. And millennials have come to a point where we don't have hope, yeah. right? And when you don't have hope, what, what do you have? Anxiety. And, and, and when, when you don't have surety and, and, and security for something that might be better, right? Well, what, all we have is fear of the future. All we have is fear of tomorrow. All we have is fear of, the, of right now. And I'm not saying that is the only thing, but I think that is, that is a cultural story is, is we don't have hope. We, we don't actually function out of what I like to call redemptive optimism. I'm not optimistic in some naive sense as if like, let's just wish the world gets better. Um, redemptive optimism is believing that there is an empty tomb. So my hope is always sure. And God is going to bring redemption. Yeah. And, and if I can stay in that place, then, I, then it doesn't matter how crazy and crappy life gets. I'm always living from the place that death was defeated in Jesus. And that, in, that invites me to fullest life. And that means I have a role to play in bringing redemption to the world, to creation, to people through the story of God's redemption. And I actually think if we can capture that kind of hope again, the evangelism problem goes away. Because why evangelize if it's all, if, like if life sucks anyway? Like why, why believe that things will get better and try to help people like you said, if it's like, what's really the answer? Is, we're all just going to die. And it's such a pessimistic view that I think if we can recover this deep sense of the power of the Spirit of God to actually heal hearts, to bring real transformation. You know what? Can the church fix every issue? Of course not. Like, I'm not naive in that sense. But human to human, like, I choose to believe that if you have breath, there is still hope. Yeah. If we still have life, there is still the possibility of change. If we still are functioning in the way that we are, like there is still the possibility of redemption. And and I just feel like we have lost that. We are, and people will blame the media, right? We'll blame, you know, the fear mongering will bring like, and fine, whatever. We've, we've been raised in a world where on every news station, it's always the negative stuff. And I get that. But I think that's where the church actually has a better message, right? And, and that's where we can actually speak into the deficiencies of culture, not from superiority, but from weakness. Hey, I know that feeling. Here's where I found my hope. Here, here's why I found my healing. Yeah, amen. Like I, so this is really fascinating to me when we talk about this being the most pessimistic generation. Because if you can, if you look at where we're at on the Maslow hierarchy of needs, we're at the very top right now. So if you're not familiar with the Maslow hierarchy of needs, it's this theory about um, just the needs that every human has. And kind of as you achieve one, you move on to caring about the next one. So the very bottom is physiological needs. It's air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, reproduction, like the basic necessities to live. Like those are the primary things you got to be concerned with taking care about. Once those are taken care of, then you move on to the safety needs, personal security, employment, resources, health, and property. Once you take care of those, you move on to love and belonging, friendship, intimacy, family, sense of connection. After that, it's esteem, respect, self-esteem, status, recognition, strength, freedom. And at the very top of that is self-actualization. So that's the desire to become like the most you can possibly be. And, you know, as a society develops, you know, you can stop kind of worrying about some of those needs that are lower down and focus on those top and leveled ones. So now we're in this postmodern world um, where, you know, we are the richest we've ever been, the most prosperous we've ever been. Um, you know, families aren't being 
you know, we're not dying of unnecessary diseases nearly as much. Um, but a lot of these things, a lot of these things kind of in the top of the pyramid, uh, are, we're pursuing those, we're, we're free to pursue those now and we're ending up pessimistic at the end of it all. So it's like, well, clearly we just have not found the answer. I mean, I think a lot of previous generations, there's been argument that like, you know, faith sustained them through the difficulty of trying to secure a job and trying to uh, have food and provide for your family, like all of these, all these things that maybe they didn't get to, uh, all these things that prevented them from maybe thinking deeply about who they are in relation to everything in the world. And now we're at a point where, uh, you know, we're left to explore those answers and search for those answers and people are coming up short. And I think that's where this depression is. It's like, well, we've reached the end of it. There's nothing left to discover. And you get nihilism from that. I think that it's true of certain demographic because I would say that, you know, with the rise of automation, it's going to be hard for people to find jobs with the growing disparity of wealth. It's going to be, so I think for some people, for the general culture, the ones who set culture, the rich people, the influential people, the powerful, who essentially set the narrative, yeah. 100%, I agree. Although, to be honest, and this could maybe can be another conversation, but I actually have an issue with the whole Maslow Triangle of, or hierarchy of needs because I think that it's way too self-focused and, and humanistic and that the highest need of my life Self-actualization and it's anyways. I, I won't get into I, it. I right think from now. a secular perspective, sec it makes sense. It makes a lot of right? sense, which I, I mean, we kind of have to understand our culture through that perspective a little bit. I think like we know what the better answer is, but we also have to understand how they're kind of making their way through life as well. Yeah, well, and when you're told that essentially the greatest value you bring is to be your authentic self, which yeah. is really self. Um, self-actualization be who you're called be who you are right and make the best like that is essentially the the lie yeah right is that at the end of that there is some ultimate hope that all like no because even at that right like part of <laughs> part of the way that we have invent reinvented the process of self-actualization is just deception that i'll only show the best parts of me I'll only let you see what I want you to see because if you saw the real me, you'd be scared because I'm scared of that person, right? I'm scared to admit the thoughts I have. I'm scared to be in that space. And I think because we've built such a shallowness of culture, right? Mixed with highly, like we are, like, I think because of media and I don't mean it in like news. I just mean like the way we communicate all the media outlets, magazines, newspapers, online, all this stuff that we can see the world in a new way. We are so much more um, aware of what's going on, right? Like, you know, 50 years ago, 75 years ago, right? If there was a crisis in the middle of Africa, you're not going to hear about it. We're going to hear about it today, right? And and I think because we are so aware of how broken the world is ever more, that it just, it feeds this whole thing of like, it just breaks the shallowness of what we're in. And then and what, and what do we do with that, right? If... If at the end of the day, all I all I am fed is from the cultural narrative of, you know, you are essentially your own God. Create whatever world you want. Be whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Be whoever you think you, you, you need to be in a world that's falling to pieces that you have no control over. You can't ultimately fix. And it's happening everywhere. Oh, and and present only the good parts on Instagram that will get likes and feed that. Cause as cheesy as it is, that is how people are driven often today. Like all that you're asking for is a, a facade of a life, a, a good image that can't sustain the deep brokenness of the world. Like I think in all of our, you can do it, you can actualize, you can create, you can be the entrepreneur, which I think is a great message. Fine. We're not dealing with the fact that we've never solved human brokenness, ultimately, right? And and now we're seeing it so much more prevalently. And and I think the church's response to it has to be consistently redemptive optimism that Jesus can make us better first 
and through us, ultimately, the world around us. Like we talk about it at church, right? It's that we live from the condition of our soul, right? The Christian version of self-actualization is self-denial, is self-death. It's, it's picking up my cross and living for others. And that only happens when I have an otherworldly joy, love, and peace that I have given and that I don't have to sustain by what I'm at or what I'm doing, which is the message of Jesus. I will give you heaven right now, a joy that is full, a life that's abundant if you follow me. If you come my way, if you, if you, Matthew 20, 11, right? Just walk the way they walk. Come and take my yoke upon you. You'll find rest. That's what we're after. That's what anxiety is. That anxiety is the opposite of that rest, right? And, and so, I don't know. I just, I feel like this, this, this whole story ultimately sits in this whole thing that we as a church truly, I think, obviously I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian, I believe it, but have the greatest, not only message, but motivation for hope. Death is not the end. Suffering is not final. Failure is not the final word. We have redemption. We have these things. And that you can actually have a healthy soul, not just an image, not like you can actually be a fully alive human being, redeemed, not thinking the way you used to think, not believing the thing, not hurting the same way, not inflicting wounds the way you used to. Like I actually heard a quote today that, Dallas Willard said that one of the marks of spiritual maturity is realizing the things I no longer think and just yeah. realizing that my mind has been purified by Jesus over time. And like, I, like that's what we have to offer people. Yeah. And, and I think if evangelism doesn't come from that heart, I agree. Why would we want to do it in a world that is highly sensitive, highly me focused, highly feeling based and, and highly comfort driven? The call to, to discipleship is anti-worldly, right? Like it, it's not what this world wants to hear, but it's but it is such a great hope that we have, and and I just think we've lost a little bit of that. Like we've we 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 we've adopted the pessimistic view that culture tells us to have. Yeah. So I think really the call is that we need to care deeply about the condition of others' people's souls. We want them mm-hmm. to not feel the, that suffering. We know that there is so much internal suffering going on that maybe has like maybe an unprecedented level of internal suffering. Mm. And I think it's invisible. Sometimes we don't see it, but it's just as widespread as anything else. Mm-hmm.